from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons as always. Maya or Maha, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Katerina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, my dear two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, who wrote a wonderful message to me recently, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so, so much. You are truly appreciated. This particular podcast is dedicated to John and Shannon. Now, this one's going to be a little different from our usual format because, quite frankly, I found it rather difficult to find any background information on our proposed villain of this story. So we will start with what I could find. Her name is Sandra D., though I couldn't find what her maiden name was or where she was born. I also could find no information about her parents, possible siblings, or anything. So this part of the story at this particular time is a bit of a mystery, but I will fill it in if I do find anything. What I do know was that she was born in 1967 based on court records. I know in 1983, she had her first child at 16 years old and married the father. She then became Sandra D. or Sandy Peterson. She then cheated on Mr. Peterson with a man named Robert Chapin, divorced and became Sandy Chapin. In 1985, at just 18, Sandy gave birth to a daughter named Lena Chapin. Then, from what I understand, she divorced Robert and married his brother, Richard Chapin. During all of this, she had four more daughters, and by looking at their early childhood photos, there's a good chance most have a different father. It does, at least to me, appear as though Lena and the next daughter, Robin, have the same father or their fathers were brothers, and you kind of see the confusion. Again, this part of the story is hazy at best. But in all, Sandy had six daughters, Brandy, then Lena, then Robin, followed by Jean, Rachel, and then baby Rosie. Now, Brandy was described as the good and well-behaved first child. Lena was described as the ornery, bossy child, but bubbly little girl that everyone liked. She tended to get in trouble a little more often, but that was one little part that people actually loved about her was her confidence and independence. Even from a young age, Lena was sort of the leader of the sisters and very much helped to take care of them. 
Now, between Sandy's divorce from Robert or Richard Chapin, she began having an affair with Albert McCullough. But let's backtrack just a bit and get into what Sandy's daughter's earliest childhood memories were. From first memory, Sandy's daughter said that they had always been poor, that they had had to do without many times. But Sandy had never been afraid of hard work and the girls had never gone hungry. The oldest daughter, Brandy, said that Sandy had been a great mother when the girls were little. She had not been a drinker, had never done any drugs or even smoked cigarettes that she was ever aware of, quite straight-laced. The girls said the hardest part of growing up was not knowing what was going to happen from one day to the next. Sandy uprooted the girls on several occasions and moved around quite a bit. You see, Sandy had a habit of meeting men, falling in love. Then as the dust settled and the newness of the relationship wore off, she would begin to sneak around with a new man. Sandy would then pack the family up to move in with the new man wherever he might live, rinse and repeat. Now, Sandy herself was a very beautiful young woman, dark hair, dark eyes, very nice skin. She had a certain sex appeal that her daughters could not deny. Sandy was described as having a certain way about her that most men found irresistible. But again, once the honeymoon phase of the relationship was over, she was ready to move on and her daughter stated she wouldn't be with any one man for more than a couple of years. And she also seemed to have a particular interest in married men. So when the new transition would begin, the girls were told to lie to whatever current boyfriend Sandy had about where Sandy was so that she could be free to be with her new beau. And this, this having to lie for your mother is something that I know very well. Sandy met and began a relationship, as I said, with Albert McCullough. I was able to find that Albert had been married to another woman when this relationship began and Albert and his wife divorced in 93. Listening to his interview, it becomes quite apparent that Sandy was a charmer, talented at saying exactly what a person wanted to hear, and that she could talk her way into just about anything. Brandy, the oldest, was 10 years old when her mother got together with Albert, and she described him as a very good stepfather to her and her sisters. They married in 1994, and Albert treated the children with kindness and patience. It was around this time that Sandy was in nursing school and wasn't home much, so Albert sort of took over raising the girls. And he spoiled the girls as best he could, signing them up for gymnastics, team sports, taking them down to the river to swim and play and fish. He doted on them, there was no doubt, and he did love them. And then predictably, after a few years, he noticed things had changed and he knew that she was having an affair, but with who would shock him to his core. One or more of Sandy's daughters felt guilty and confessed to Albert that their mother was getting with his own brother, Gary. 
When Albert found out, he confronted Gary, and a physical altercation ensued. But they eventually stopped fighting after Sandy approached the brothers and hit Albert in the back with a large stick. He said it knocked the breath out of him. Albert warned Gary right then and there that Sandy was bad news, but Gary didn't care. So Sandy and Albert divorced in 1996 after she and all six girls moved out of Albert's house in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and went back up into Missouri, Cassville to be exact, which is not too far north from the Arkansas border. There, Gary had a farm, and the children learned very quickly that they had to help out with chores. Along with that, Gary worked for George's, which is a company that owns chicken houses and has a factory for processing those chickens for food. It is hard, messy, foul, and grueling work, to say the least, but being a native of this area myself, I can say that Sometimes that was the only work a person can find that paid a decent enough wage to live on. But the couple got married the same year she and Albert divorced, in 1996. So an investigator for the Barry County Sheriff's Office stated, quote, They were a poor family that raised chickens and cows, worked hard, and did what they could to get by. Gary liked to hunt. The family had to because there were times if they didn't kill something, they didn't eat. Gary was a good old boy who would give you the shirt off of his back. Sandy's kids weren't used to doing chores and didn't like Gary making them help around the farm, which is to be expected. But the girls learned to not only tend the farm animals, but also to cut wood so they'd have fuel for heat during the winter. However, he, too, was a kind man who, once the girls were done with their chores, it was said he often took them out for ice cream as a reward. It seemed as though he didn't give the girls more work than they could handle at their age. And Brandy said during her interview with Unsolved Mysteries that he taught them how to be able to take care of themselves without having to be dependent upon anyone else. She said he taught them self-discipline, which she was very grateful for in her adult life. It just so happened that he got mixed up with the wrong woman. Now, Sandy's rather predictable modus operandi was to, once she had the men, she would begin the process of isolating them from their friends and family nearly immediately. She did it to Albert and again to Gary. It is speculated that Sandy had originally thought Albert had some kind of financial backing, but then when she saw Gary had a farm, well, she latched onto him, driving a wedge between him and his family and friends. If he went hunting, she would accuse him of cheating, and the new cycle would begin. After a couple of years, Sandy began having an affair on Gary with a man named Christopher Klemp. He was nearly 10 years her junior, and it was the opinion of the people interviewed that perhaps Chris was more handsome than Gary, sure, but what she really saw was dollar signs. You see, Chris's family had money, property, and influence. Their affair began in March of 1999. 
Sandy's daughters eventually met Chris, and one of them stated that she was convinced that Gary would absolutely destroy Chris because, well, quite frankly, Gary was a tree, quote-unquote, and Chris was a smaller, thinner man. And it didn't really take long for Gary to figure out Sandy was running around on him, and very soon after, he was actually arrested for allegedly writing a bunch of bad checks to various stores over the state line in Arkansas, only the account was one he hadn't used in many years. He learned that Sandy had found the old checkbook for the old account and had written a bunch of bad checks. Then he found out that Sandy hadn't even been making the farm payments and they were nearly going to lose the property back to the bank. And then it was said in the newspaper, the Monette Times, that Gary also, quite literally, caught Sandy in a parked truck with Christopher doing what? Well, I don't know. He told a close friend that he was going to have to file for divorce. Gary began moving items from his house and told his boss at George's to not give his paycheck to Sandy, that even if she provided a note, it would be forged and to not do it. Now behind the scenes, none of any of that really mattered because Sandy was already allegedly plotting to murder Gary. As a matter of fact, for a few months, Sandy had been talking to some of her co-workers about murdering Gary, including various ways a person could dispose of a body. A co-worker told her to simply divorce Gary. Her response was that she would not give him a dime. And then, just like that, in May of that same year, Gary disappeared. Co-workers said that Gary was an incredibly hard worker and never missed work, and yet, he hadn't shown up for a couple of days. Immediately, one of his friends said that they knew they would be looking for a body, not just a missing person. The same friend said that not long before he disappeared, Gary had brought a shotgun to his house for him to store because Sandy had aimed this shotgun at his stomach and pulled the trigger, but he had thought there was no ammo in it. His friend opened the gun and saw a shell in the chamber, much to Gary's surprise. Now, Gary insisted that he always took any live rounds out, which meant that Sandy had loaded the gun and attempted to shoot him, but for some reason, the gun didn't discharge. The friend stated that he saw the realization wash over Gary's face, and that was the last time he ever saw Gary again. He officially disappeared on May 11, 1999, and was reported missing to the police two days later by a cousin of his, Robert McCullough. Robert said that no one in their family had seen Gary in a couple of days, and they were concerned. Around that same time, the sheriff's office sent a car out to do a welfare check on Gary, who found it concerning that his own wife hadn't reported him missing, and then they just happened to notice one of their cows was out of the fence. As the officers were getting the cow back into the fence, Sandy pulled up on them with her daughter Lena with her, asking what they were doing. 
While they were chatting, one of the officers asked Sandy if perhaps she had anything she wanted to tell him. She said that, yeah, she'd better go ahead and report Gary missing and that he hadn't been home for two days. Her statement was that Gary had gone to Diamond, Missouri, which is not even an hour northwest of Cassville, to purchase some fighting roosters. Though she was unable to provide a name or anything as to whom Gary had been in contact with. And with that, he was officially listed as a missing person. Three days later, Gary's truck was found abandoned on a dead-end road near Pulaski Field, a 22-minute drive nearly due north of Cassville. So the police went to the farm with a search warrant to search, and at first, Sandy refused to let them in. She was livid that they were even there. But as they searched, it became painfully obvious that there really was no trace of Gary even in that house. His clothes and nearly all of his personal belongings were gone. But what police did find was Chris Klemp's checkbook. It was very clear that only after a few days of Gary being gone, Chris had in fact moved into the house. So the authorities asked her if she'd be willing to take a polygraph test to which she replied, quote, if you find a body, I'll take a polygraph, end quote. The official police report said, a very lengthy investigation has gone on with this case. The wife of Gary, this being Sandy McCullough, stated if we find a body, she will take a polygraph. Lena, Robert's daughter, was home from school when Gary came up missing. The policeman said she knew there was no body to be found and that it would be like trying to find a needle in a haystack at this point. The police officer even said, well, hell, she'd had a week by now, hadn't she? They were able to question the children, and it was Lena who, quite clearly, knew more than she was saying. She was highly defensive about her mother getting verbally aggressive with the police. One of the sisters stated that she remembered Lena at the station telling them all to be quiet, don't speak, mind your business. Lena was in her early teens at this time. It is important to remember that all six girls had been lying for their mother all of their lives. So really, why would this be any different? Brandy, the oldest sister, said that when the girls got home from school on May 11th, the day Gary went missing, their mother met them at the door after they got off the bus, telling them that a cat had given birth to kittens out in the field and run along, guys, go find them. Now, Brandy said she didn't run off with the other girls, though, because she knew she had to go milk cows and her rubber boots and other needed items were inside the house. She stated in her interview with Unsolved Mysteries that she sat on the porch for a few minutes waiting, then decided to go on inside to get her stuff so she could go milk, and that's when she witnessed her mother on her hands and knees scrubbing the floor with bleach water. She said that what caught her attention was that her mother's hair was up in a ponytail and her mother very rarely ever wore her hair up. And then during dinner that night, as the children and Sandy sat at the table, she told the girls that, should anyone ask, 
Gary went off to buy some fighting roosters that they had had spaghetti for dinner, and we haven't seen Gary since. Another sister, Robin, stated that she remembered Lena being told not to let the girls leave the bedroom, so Lena slept on the floor just outside the door that night. Robin said that she watched out the window as her mother and the new boyfriend, Chris, dragged something that looked incredibly heavy, wearing Gary's boots in a tarp across the yard after dark. If any of the other sisters questioned Lena about what was going on, well, Lena would tell them that they couldn't say anything or someone would take them all away and separate them and they'd never see each other again. Lena was terrified of this happening, so, of course, the girls complied. Allegedly, what happened on May 11, 1999, was that Sandy shot Gary three times in the head while he was sitting on his couch eating scrambled eggs. She then wrapped him in some kind of plastic sheeting and dragged his body into the bedroom. Then later, when she saw the kids coming up to the house after arriving home from school, Sandy stopped them at the door, except 13-year-old Lena. She was told to come inside the house and help her mother dispose of Gary's body, according to the newspaper, The Monette Times. According to Sandy's new boyfriend, Chris, his ex-wife, whose name is Jennifer, Chris had asked Jennifer to drop him off at Gary's farm later that evening, and when Jennifer came back to pick him up in the early hours of the morning, she stated that he came running out of the ditch and jumped into the car looking like a, quote, scared rabbit. Supposedly, over the next two days, Lena was forced to help Sandy clean up the crime scene, according to court records, where the floors were bleached, rugs, thrown away. Gary's body was burned in a brush pile all night. Lena apparently made a statement saying her mother had pulled her out of school on May 13th, so this is two days after the alleged murder, to help Sandy make sure that there were no large bones in the burn pile, as in someone had dug through that burn pile, retrieved the bones, and got rid of them. Lena was then told to help her mother sift through the ashes to look for any further bone fragments, which were then collected into buckets and then scattered all throughout the property. Then they returned to the burn pile, dug out several inches of dirt to be absolutely sure there was nothing left. Police say that Gary was a big guy, weighing an estimated 240 pounds, and they agree with the idea that Lena and Chris had to have helped Sandy dispose of Gary's body. The major roadblock was that, due to the lack of evidence, the only thing they could charge her with was selling mortgaged cattle immediately after Gary disappeared, but those charges were eventually dropped. Once Sandy felt the heat was off of her, at least marginally, she, Chris, and the girls moved from the southwest corner of Missouri all the way up to St. Louis. Less than a year later, Sandy was granted a divorce from Gary because he quite obviously didn't show up to the hearing, which was in April of 2000. And side note, 
Gary was officially declared dead in 2005 after a request from his family. So Sandy and Chris quickly married while in St. Louis, but then the family moved a couple of hours back southwest to a very small town called Sligo, Missouri in August of 2000. While living there, Lena was working a couple of different jobs and living with her mother and new stepfather. Her sister stated that she became ever increasingly distant and anxious, always seemed to be on edge. The friends she made stated that she never drank or touched drugs, and then as time went on, she began to dabble. Her sister stated that as Lena got older, it became painfully obvious that she was struggling with something inside of her and she really needed to talk about it, but wouldn't, except she finally did confide in a boyfriend. Now this boyfriend encouraged her to speak out about what happened, that Gary's family had a right to know what had happened to him. So now in 2003, 17-year-old Lena drums up the courage to meet with Albert. Albert taped a conversation with Lena. After we talked a little while, I said, I don't know who in the hell killed my brother, Gary. Who killed Gary? She knows. I need something to verify Gary is gone. How would the person go about doing that? I mean, is there any way that we can do that? There's Sandy had forced Lena to help clean up the crime scene, which included allegedly dismembering his body and wrapping the pieces up in plastic. The remains were then placed on a burn pile on the property and burned. Lena was said to have been completely overwhelmed by the guilt. So Albert and his attorney gave the tape to investigators in Barry County. 
At this point, the house that had been on the property with the potential crime scene or any possible evidence had since been torn down by the new owner. And unfortunately, a couple of days after Lena had returned home from talking to Albert, Sandy discovered what Lena had done and immediately obtained her own lawyer. This lawyer convinced Lena to retract her confession. But Lena still wanted to tell the truth, so she confided in her big sister Brandy about what had happened. Brandy sat in silence, horrified by what she was hearing. Brandy then got into a heated argument with Sandy, where she threatened to go to the police and tell them everything she knew. Brandy said that, quite calmly, her mother told her to get into the truck. She complied, and they, with Chris driving, went for a country drive in the middle of the night. They stopped, and Brandy and Chris got out, and immediately Chris pointed a gun at Brandy. As Brandy began screaming and begging for her life, Sandy looked on unfazed, doing the only thing she could think of to do to save her life. She opened her mother's door and began holding her mother, begging her not to kill her. She said that she felt that Chris might not risk hitting Sandy. Sandy told Chris to put the gun down and together they went back to Sandy's house. That was enough to silence Brandy as well as Lena. Lena was completely traumatized and began having issues with eating and sleeping. Her otherwise good-natured behavior changed as she began lashing out. She started having run-ins with the law, surrounding herself with the absolute wrong kind of people. She eventually dropped out of school, was actually pregnant when she confessed to Albert what had happened to Gary, and she gave birth to her son, Coulter, five months later in November 2003. And finally, Lena had something to wrap her life around that was positive, and she devoted her entire existence to that baby. Now, there was some speculation in the sources that Lena might have been having sexual relations with Chris, her stepfather, and that Sandy had been aware. There was some gossip as to who the baby's father was, Chris or Lena's boyfriend. Now, personally, I don't believe this whatsoever, but because sources did note it, I thought that I should as well. Lena had to work multiple jobs to be able to provide for Coulter and herself, which forced her to allow Sandy to babysit him. Lena and Sandy would then often get into these verbal altercations about the baby because, quite frankly, Lena was becoming independent and didn't need help from her mother, which made her mother believe that Lena might start talking again. And as it was, Sandy was beginning to tell people that the boy was actually hers, going so far as having the baby actually call her mom. After all, it had been quite clear that Sandy had always wanted a son, and some even suggested she was eerily obsessed with Coulter. Brandy told the story that once, Lena and Brandy were riding together down into Arkansas so that Coulter could visit his biological father, and then Sandy found out and called them. She ordered them to bring the little boy home, or she would, quote, kill herself. 
So Lena had, by this point, met a young man named Jason Bryant, and they moved in together in an apartment just outside of Steelville, not too far from Sandy. No longer with the baby's father, Jason seemed to accept Coulter and wanted to be a father to the young child. This was another step in Lena's attempt to get further away from her mother, which was, of course, unacceptable. And then, in 2008, came the civil wrongful death suit that the McCullough family filed against Sandy. Sure, there wasn't enough evidence for a criminal suit, but they could file a civil one. When the authorities went to deliver the court summons to Sandy and Chris Klemp, they were also supposed to summon Lena as well. The hope was that Lena would ask for immunity for being an accessory and turn state's evidence against her mother and Chris. Except Lena was nowhere to be found. Keep in mind that Lena confessed to Albert during the summer of 2003. Coulter was born that same year when Lena was 17 years old, and this was now five years later. Law documents stated, 11-17-2008, Robert Chapin reported to their office that his daughter, who was living with Sandy and Christopher Klemp, mother and stepfather, states that Lena was missing and had been missing for two years. Sandy told Robert that Lena and her boyfriend had moved to Florida. So the officer went to Sandy's house and inquired about Lena's whereabouts. Sandy told them a story that Lena had taken up with some guy and that they had left and moved down to Florida. So Brandy also said that once it was discovered that Lena was missing back in 2006, she had asked her mother where her sister was. Sandy told her that she had moved to Florida with some new guy, and Brandy instantly knew that this was not true because, well, the sisters were also very close friends, and Brandy knew everyone Lena hung out with, and there was no other guy. But she had nothing to prove otherwise, and though uneasy about the situation, all she felt she could do was wait to hear from her sister. But there was never any communication from Lena. Lena officially disappeared on February 14, 2006, when she was 20 years old. Younger sister Robin, before it was apparent she was missing, went by the apartment to visit her sister when Jason told her that Lena was gone, that she had taken off with some guy and went to Florida. Instantly, Robin knew something was wrong. Jason told her that Sandy had informed him that's what Lena had done. Now, Robin was able to take a look around the apartment and saw that nearly all of Lena's clothes and belongings were still in the apartment, and some had even been placed outside, left in the elements to get ruined. But the elephant in the room was that, under no circumstances, Lena wouldn't have left her son, and especially not with her mother. And promptly, Sandy filed abandonment charges against Lena so that she could get full custody of Coulter. Chris and Sandy began moving to a new home in Dent County one month after Lena disappeared, according to documents obtained from the Dent County Recorder's office. The apartment Lena and Jason had shared had been abandoned for a short time when the owners gained entry. The unit's owner offered more information about that apartment scene. 
Quote, I was cleaning the unit with a friend of mine after they left when we found a stain. I said to them, what did they do? Kill a dog in here? The apartment owner says the unit carpets had to be replaced due to a large, dark-colored stain that could not be shampooed out. One of the apartment windows was also broken. According to the Phelps County Focus newspaper, a report from the Crawford County Sheriff's Office obtained by the Salem News confirmed the owner reported the broken window as property damage in March 18, 2006. The report indicated that Jason had vacated the apartment several weeks prior, which would be around the time of Lena's disappearance. Jason came home from work the day Lena disappeared to see Sandy and two other people in his apartment clearing some things out. That's when Sandy told Jason Lena was gone. The apartment owner says they did not contact law enforcement at that time because Chapin had not been reported missing and foul play had not been suspected. The owner says the carpet was thrown away and a later fire in the building from a renter smoking in bed subsequently destroyed the apartment unit that Chapin stayed in. Sandy and Chris actually had access to two properties at this time, the house and a bit of land in Sligo, and they also had access to an 80-acre ranch near Salem, Missouri, not far away. The new owners of the properties gave Brandy and Robin permission to search the land where Sandy and Chris had lived. The old house on the Sligo property has since been torn down. There was a spot on the large bit of acreage where Sandy had told Robin that she had buried a dog, which Robin found odd because she knew her mother had buried that dog at the Sligo property. Robin informed the police that she believed her mother had killed Lena just as she had killed Gary nine years before. The sisters began posting missing persons posters around the local cities trying to find any information about where their sister might be. Robin then found out that Sandy was paying one of the youngest sisters $5 for each poster she could take down. She called her mother and told her that she knew that she had something to do with Lena's disappearance and that she would make sure that her mother paid. It was said in the Unsolved Mysteries episode in July of 2013, Judge Carr Woods heard the wrongful death lawsuit brought against Sandy and Chris Klemp for the murder of Gary McCullough. Lena's confession tape was not allowed to be used as evidence, but Lena's sisters were allowed to testify, and it was said that Brandy's testimony in particular was moving. She described the night Chris had pointed the gun at her in front of the truck and how her mother had sat with an emotionless expression on her face during this encounter. Ultimately, the trial resulted in Sandy and Chris being found guilty of knowingly taking the life of Gary McCullough and were ordered to pay eight million dollars to daughters that Gary had had prior to his marriage to Sandy. The next year Sandy and Chris divorced and Sandy quickly remarried a man named Joe Wink. She also still had custody of Coulter who was 11 years old at this point. Brandy stated that she, up to the airing of the documentary, hadn't seen Coulter since he was about five years old. 
She knew that Sandy had homeschooled him for quite some time because she didn't want him to find out about any of the scandals around her. Brandy and Robin, most likely funded by Unsolved Mysteries, brought a man in who had a ground-penetrating radar machine to search the properties. Unfortunately, there was no evidence that anything had been buried in those specific areas. Law enforcement officials have been keeping track of Lena's social security number in hopes that, at some point, it would ping somewhere like she was trying to get a job or really anything, but so far there has been no such evidence. So as of 2016, Sandy, who again remarried and her last known last name is Wink, was living in Mount Vernon, Missouri, which is just southwest of Springfield. I was able to find Joe's Facebook page, but he has it locked down pretty tight. There are several pictures of Joe and Sandy together. She looks happy, smiling, no conscious issues whatsoever. I also found Coulter's Facebook, and it states that he lives near Mount Vernon. It is apparent that he loves farm life, showing many photos of a flatbed farm truck in his pictures. This indicates to me that Coulter is still living with or living in the vicinity of Sandy as of this podcast. So this makes Sandy being married at least five times, if not seven times. And this kind of feels familiar to me because my own mother was married eight times. Being uprooted and having to move and lie for a parent, well, that's very familiar. So what do you think, guys? Do you think Lena is still alive? I don't think she's alive. I think that her mother murdered her just as she murdered Gary. Now, that's allegedly, supposedly my opinion. But tell me, guys, what do you think of this case? Leave me a comment below if you're watching, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. Consider becoming a patron. And as always, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, and have a great day.